So one thing I've realized is that um, I, I've never started off a sermon talking about the, uh, the Enneagram, okay? Uh, but here it goes. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with it, basically the, the Enneagram is a system of personality typing, all right, that describes patterns and how people interpret the world and manage their emotions, all right? That's a nice way of saying, yes, it's another type of personality test. Yes, I get it. Um, without going into all of its, its depths uh, or giving an opinion on its legitimacy, all right? Actually, my wife, Shannon, she refers to it as the idiotogram. She is not a big fan, which may tell you what her personality type is, right? <laughs> so I say, hey, we, there's a category. Um, but when it comes to my particular Enneagram classification, I'll just say this. I, I'm one that appreciates the, the keeping all of my options open approach to life, all right? Keep my op options open. Want to make sure that um, I'm in the know, that I can pivot when needed to make sure I know what's going on and be part of the fun and, and not miss out. That's, that's a big part of uh, what can define me at times. Now, look, there's, there's positive aspects of this, all right? I mean, uh, I can be in a place where I'm always, you know, reimagining new ways to approach a problem, creative thinking, creativity, but I trust you there's negative aspects as well, right? Um, there's the fear of missing out, I mentioned. Uh, FOMO, maybe some of you know what that is. It runs deep with me. It runs deep at times, just not wanting to miss out. And, and the more... I honestly care to admit it really can, can govern me. Even in my most satisfying, contempt places of rest, there is uh, this nagging question of whether or not I'm missing out on something better. And like I said, I can pivot easily to other pursuits. But let's talk about spiritual stuff, right? My own spiritual life, my heart, the fact that it's so easy, Enneagram aside, in who I am, who I am, that my affections to God, they can easily be turned away. I can lose sight of my hope in Christ as the true satisfaction of, of what is my spiritual longing, right? Simply put, what happens is I stop worshiping God and worship other things. Can you relate? Can you relate to this? We all have spiritual longing. We have to understand this. And a lot of times what we miss out on is what God has given us to satisfy that longing. And we are seeing this today as we go into the story of, of Ezra chapter 3. And that's where we're going to be this morning. If you'd open your Bible to Ezra chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. It's the, the whole chapter. Uh, I would love for you to stand if you're willing and able and read along with me. We stand, why? We stand because we, this is a picture of that, we stand under the word of God. It's our authority, it's our life, it's our principle, and it's the word of God to us. In Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 1, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. 
as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They, sat, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept a feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the, mission, the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to all the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of to the, to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites, from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hedonad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we give thanks to you this morning that we can come together, encounter you, encounter your word, and truly worship you this morning. And Father, that is my prayer, that Father, you, by your grace and by the power of your spirit, guide us to a place of worship of you and you alone through your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and ask that you allow our hearts and minds to be opened and to understand the truth you have for us this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. Pastor Paul mentioned in the announcement video as well, just talking about how you know, the Lord has blessed our church with, with, with men who, who bring the word each Sunday and uh, the team that we have. And I just want to say I'm very thankful for Pastor Paul uh, who has helped me with this sermon throughout the week, but also 
Pastor Josh over at the East Campus, he has helped me tremendously uh, with this sermon this week, and I just want to give credit to him uh, for that and, and thanks. Uh, we, we are blessed. We are a blessed church for what God has provided us in the preached word, and I pray that is for you this morning. So what we're seeing here is, is a story, a story that is very appropriate as we wind this this sermon series down. And I mentioned in the introduction talking about the open-endedness of, of my personality, kind of seeking that. And one thing I didn't go into really in depth was is just the fact that, you know, the fact that, that I seek to have open-endedness in my life and options and all these things, the truth is I don't want that. I want closure. I think you can understand that we, we desire closure in our life, settledness, but in particular, when we think about the spiritual longings of our heart, like I mentioned earlier, we can easily get swayed away from what God has given to us. Disobeying his commands, turning away, turning to idols. And the truth is, we relate very much to Israel in this way. As much as I've gone through the series listening to Pastor Paul preach and other sermons on this, you know, there's that tendency that can be there. It's like, okay, that's, that's the nation of Israel. That was a long time ago. We're in the new covenant. Thank the Lord. Yes, thank the Lord. I'm following after Christ. But man, how this series has helped me see my own heart in this, just as we observe Israel in these ways. And speaking of lack of closure and open-endedness, we, we've seen that, you know, every chapter of the story of Israel seems to end the same way. Despite God's lavish goodness, his presence and grace, in moments of fidelity and victory for Israel, things take a turn with Israel. Either with Israel turning away from God, or there's simply no closure to a particular story, with things ending in uncertainty. Think of Abraham. He receives a great calling and great promises, but what happens? He dies. Barely a foothold in the land open-ended, no closure. Israel is delivered from slavery, and God makes a covenant with them. But what happens? They reject and stumble, and they reject his grace. Joshua leads Israel into the land of promise, but they don't hold fast to God there. God gives them a king, but the kings don't rule according to God's law. The prophets rebuke, and some renewal takes place, but we see that it's only temporary. And thinking back to last week's message, we, we, we left with Israel in exile, away from its land, away from the presence and promises of God. Israel finds themselves in this place of just no closure, open-endedness. And this brings us to Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, just so you know, originally it was considered one book, and along with First and Second Chronicles, they tell the story, the final chapters of the story of Israel, at least in the Old Testament. And at the end, we, we know that between the, the camp, between the old and new, there was a silence that took place, a 400-year silence. And I think that's why this is a fitting place to conclude our series. After 25 years after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, 
We know that Nebuchadnezzar, he dies, which brings about the decline of Babylon. We see the fall of Babylon to the Persians. We also see King Cyrus come onto the scene. And the difference between King Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar was pretty interesting. Nebuchadnezzar was, he would conquer lands and he would do so in a way to make sure that once they conquered the land, the peoples they conquered, they would be transformed into the culture. They would seek to just change people in all of their life to be conforming to what he desired. Cyrus, on the other hand, approached it a little bit differently. They, he would send the people back to their lands to prosper, to build lives again. But with the intent of, once they do so, they can pay taxes to him. He also did and desired that the peoples, as they went back to the lands, that they continue to worship their gods. He even asked and uh, uh, requested that they pray to their gods for him. A little bit different. And so we see that this is what's taking place for Israel. Cyrus, he sends them back the Israelites back to their land. And we see in Ezra 1, it relates to how God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to do so. Ezra 2 is, is the story of that return with about 42,000 people in all going back to Judea. And here we are in chapter 3. As we start this, I mean, what, what do we see here? What, what is the first order of business of these returnees? What are they doing? What do they do first? In the midst of their contrition over their past and their confusion about the present and seemingly no closure, open-endedness in their life, no promises of satisfaction on the immediate horizon, what do they do? They worship. It's the first order of business. They worship their God. And this brings us to our big idea for this morning, which is this. Even in our, pre even in our experience of distress and discipline, God is renewing and restoring his people. So let us embrace his promise, behold his glory, and enjoy his presence where we are by worshiping him. And from chapter 3 here in Ezra, we see three lessons that I want to take us through when it comes to worship. And I want to talk through what they can teach us this morning. The first is this, is that, that worship is first in our concerns. We learn that this is true for Israel, this should be true for us. The second is that the worship that the Israelites proceed with, it's, it's fitted to God's commands. Worship is fitted to God's commands. And finally, number three, we see that worship is fitting for every circumstance. Every circumstance. So first off, worship is our first concern. We see here that this is what comes first for Israel. They've been sent to the lands to rebuild, but even within the first year, there is a pilgrimage that they make to what? To return to Jerusalem and to worship the Lord. This happens in the seventh month. We see that the priority for worship, it, it draws them, it calls them to what? To rebuild the altar and begin to worship. Not even begin construction on the temple. Well, the first thing they do is they construct the altar. And one thing to understand is that the returnees coming back to Jerusalem, 
They're, they're leaving their homes in Judea. They're leaving their homes after just being there for a few, a few short months. And, and what they're doing is they're obeying the call to, to journey to Jerusalem for the feasts, to worship as commanded. And there's great cost with this, right? I mean, this isn't like, you know, going to your neighborhood church, like making a decision, all right, I'm going to go worship and just go down the street. I mean, this is, this is a pilgrimage. This is a journey. This takes time. But also understand that, that things had to be set aside to make this journey. The priority rose to worship. I'm not sure how many of you can relate to this, but if you think of recent hurricanes that have happened, one in particular that's affected my wife personally was back in 1992 with Hurricane Andrew wiping out her home. Her parents had to go through this process of rebuilding. It was their entire neighborhood, their, their town. It was just completely wiped out. And of course, many of us are very familiar with Hurricane Michael and the devastation that took place not that long ago. And I saw a post the other day on social media, someone visiting there, and they were just making the comment, which I'm grateful for, is just like, yeah, this feels, it feels like things are, are back. There's familiarity, like the things are happening. That was back in 2017 when the hurricane hit. A lot of time takes place. A lot of priority placed in, in the rebuilding. And if you think about what the Israelites were, were facing, they're, they're returning to a land where there's nothing. Can you imagine that? Having to start from scratch. Having to build everything again. There's pressure in that. They did begin the work. We see that. But yet, they had faith to lay that aside. Go to Jerusalem and what? To worship. And they did so, they did so in glad obedience. So first priority was to worship. Nothing is more important than worship. We know it's our chief end. That we were made to worship and glorify God. And there's a lesson here for us. The lesson is this in the form of a question. The, does the worship of God get the first priority in your lives? Is it your highest concern? What's keeping you from leaving to make the pilgrimage? What are you holding on to? Past week, it's just been a reflective, introspective, thankful, I'm thankful to understand my own heart in this. I don't make it a priority like I should. And maybe to help us understand the priority and what it should be, there's, there's two dimensions of, of worship that we need to understand here. First is that worship is all of life. We're going to see this in Romans chapter 12 when we get to it, when we know Romans 12 verse 1, it talks, Paul talks about that we are to be a living sacrifice. We are to embody sacrifice. We are a living sacrifice we offer our bodies up in worship to God in everything that we do, our attitudes, our actions, what we do with our time, our attention. It is all meant to be aimed at obedient, glad submission to God. That is the aim of our life. William Temple says this about worship. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, 
the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy of that self-centeredness, which is our original sin, the source of all actual willful sins. All of life. All I have is God's. It is his. Are you approaching life this way? Understand that everything that you have, it is God's. It has been given to you. Even in the working hard for it, the striving for it, and the success in it, it is still by God's grace. It is all God's. And not just the stuff, our time, our energy, it is all according to what God calls us to, and we are to give this to him. We are to offer it to him. Our whole selves are made to be offered to him our whole life. The other dimension we find and see with worship is that not only is it just all of life, but it's, it's corporate. We're meant to do this and live life in such a way that we do so Corporately, we do so together, we do so with one another. Every week we gather. We gather what? We gather around the word. We sing. We gather around sacrament, whether it be Holy Communion or when we have baptisms. We gather around these things to celebrate them, to worship God as a people. We have to understand that this is a, a corporate dimension that we just cannot find in, on ourselves and do so individually. We are to gather. We are to gather regularly. It is a picture and it proclaims the gospel. When we're gathered here right now, as we have sung songs this morning unto the Lord, as a sermon is being preached, as we're taking time this morning in our, in our busy schedules to be here, to worship God, to take sacrament together, it is a testimony to a dying world that needs to know Jesus Christ. And he is worth everything. Testifies the power of Christ. Worship involves us being a gathered people, but it's also we are a whole people Notice in the middle of verse 8, we see this. It, it mirrors verse 1 where it says, the people gathered as one man. Verse 8 says, all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity come together for the work. There's a togetherness. There's a unity. This is a whole people. I can't imagine how these people were shaped in exile. Being in exile, suffering, trying to figure out life, trying to figure out is this ever going to end? But then it comes. They're sent back to their land. And I'm sure with many opinions on what to do, what to start, what to build, what should we do, who's in charge, who's leading, all these things are at work, right? But no, their priority was to worship. You see, all other allegiances were secondary to their identity as God's people. And as their identity as God's people played out and lived, they knew it must be for so worship, it is our first concern. This brings us to the second lesson, is that worship is fitted to God's commands. So we need to note that worship was a priority for Israel, but we need to also understand that this was an obedient worship. 
The first order of business is worship, and the first priority of worship is to what? Rebuild the altar according to the law of Moses. The altar where sacrifice would take place. There was a prescription for it. There was instruction for it. They knew this. The book told them this, but they also know that the sacrifices made would be what? They would be bloody sacrifices. They would be sacrifices unto God. So we see that the worship, the commands, the obedience that's followed, that consists of, it's, it's, it's by the book and it's by the blood. By the book meaning that there's instruction. You see this in verse 4 where it says they kept the feast of booths. We know the feast of booths is what? It's the remembrance of Exodus. The Israelites would gather in Jerusalem in tents to remember that God provided for them when they lived in temporary dwelling places in the wilderness. Now they, they, they marked that remembrance. It was part of who they were. Not just the things they did, but the forms. We see that they began to worship by the instruction of David. They had this in them. They knew it. It was all to be done by the book. So they rebuild the foundation of the temple and the altar and all of this under prescription of what they knew. It's an authorized altar. It's God-ordained. It's the place where Abraham offered Isaac. They're back in Jerusalem. They're back in the very place that God called them and to be with him. And once a temple project is underway, they worship him. We see this in verse 10 in a manner described by David. There's rituals here. There's instruction One thing we need to understand is that our rituals, our daily lives, they, they, they are embodiments of, of liturgy for us. Worship just doesn't happen here on Sunday. Your rhythms, my rhythms, every day, what I think upon, what I do, what I decide to do, these are formed by my heart. These are formed by liturgies. Either I'm worshiping God or I'm worshiping the idols of my life and my own desires. We have to understand that the rituals we engage in, they have massive power to reform us. Whether it's taking the Lord's Supper or staying on top of your daily Be Real posts. Anybody? No? Okay. Just wondering. I'm on Be Real, but yeah. That's a whole other thing. Social media. Horrible. Um, the practices you embrace, they embed in you a story. All of the things we do. Am I focusing on what people see of me on social media? Am I want to make sure I'm, see again, I want to be part of it, right? Um, but what am I doing when it comes to God? You see, what we see here is that Israel, they're worshiping God. They worship God by reenacting the deeds of Abraham, by building the altars. They reenact the deeds of Moses with the Feast of Booze. They reenact the deeds of Joshua by entering with faith into the land of promise amid danger and opposition. They reenact the deeds of David by singing the songs of Israel, and they reenact the deeds of Solomon by building the foundation of the temple. All of their life is centered around this. That is worship. For us today, as we who are baptized into the community of God's people, as we, as we memorize, meditate on, delight in, and open our mouths to proclaim God's word, to sing together, to take the Lord's Supper together, we as we gather with God's people for fellowship and prioritize gathered worship, 
as we seek to live simply and give generously, as we fast, as we feast, we reenact the deeds of Jesus and we obey what the book prescribes for our worship as believers. Eugene Peterson says this quote. He says, The Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. Is that your prescription? It's something I falter in a lot of. Defining what my way is. Am I basing, what am I basing it on? My desire for us to say it is to see that we are to base this on Jesus' life. The worship of God. And so the question is, what rituals are you reenacting in your life that points you to Christ? That points you to the understanding of your need for Christ. That points you to the understanding that we need to be together worshiping together and serving together and showing this to a lost and dying world. Not only was this worship by the book, but we see that it's by the blood. Verse 5, they offered burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. It says that over 200 sacrifices of bulls, rams, and lambs. And that was just for the, the feast itself. It was in addition to the morning and evening sacrifices. Not to be grotesque, but I mean, you have to picture like this, this, this was like rivers of blood. Yesterday, I, I was tasked with grilling a steak for dinner. And so I go to the refrigerator outside in the garage, open it up, and I realize that the packaging of the steak had, it leaked. And my refrigerator was a, a bloody mess, okay? And I spent like an hour cleaning this up and frustrated and, and complaining. You know, I tell Shannon, I was like, oh man, this is going to take me an hour. And she said, just clean it up. Maybe it's a sermon illustration for you tomorrow. It's like, ah, yeah. Lord's always working, man, no doubt. But this was like a little steak that caused this mess. I mean, again, 200 bulls. And it's not to focus enough just on the fact that, again, I mean, we, we, we tend to forget just how bloody the cross was. We tend to forget the, the bloodiness of these sacrifices, representing that that there had to be a shedding of blood for there to be forgiveness of sins. I typically live my life, I mean, I'm aware of it. I'm thankful. I'm glad that Jesus has died. But I don't live with a, a marked understanding that it cost a life on my behalf. That there was blood shed. That the life was drained out of Christ. But the other thing, too, about what's amazing with the gospel and the truth that Jesus is alive, he's conquered death, that there is victory in the blood. While on one hand, I need to be mindful of my sin and my need for Christ, on the other hand, I need to know that in Christ, I have victory over my sin. And how does that cause me to worship God? It, it, it should cause me to follow after him, to obey him, and to lay aside every sin in my life, to fight against it, to put it to death. 
That's what it reminds us of. There is a right way to worship, but we also understand there is a sacrifice that was made that we must acknowledge. Our worship is fitted to God's commands. So we come by the book and we come by the blood. Thirdly, we see that worship is fitting for every circumstance. Worship is not merely for you at your holiest, and I want you to hear this, and your happiest. It's for your every season of the soul, every moment, every emotion, every emotion. We don't worship God just when we're happy. We don't worship God when we're feeling good. We are called to worship at all times. We see that one of the reasons the Israelites make offerings on the altar in verse 3, it says it's because the peoples of the land caused fear. The Israelites were afraid. Their situation is far from secure. They, they are few in number. They're marginalized and living in a hostile environment. And what does Israel do in the midst? They turn to the Lord. Are you fearful this morning? Are you living in the place of fear? Turn to the Lord. Worship him. But there's also this picture of failure. They are in the, in the rubble, in the ruins of, of the beautiful, splendid, the amazing temple that was built under King Solomon. They are, they are worshiping God with this reminder of their failure, with this reminder of their sin all around them. Instead of turning away from God, what do they do? They worship him. Their ancestral homes are rubble, the temple lies in ruin, and they worship. So where do you go when you're brought low? When you blow it? When you're sitting, when you're sifting through the rubble of your own failure, where do you go? When you find yourself in the rubble of your own failures, we are to fall on our knees and worship God. That's what we are to do. Whether you're there because of your own sin or because of suffering on you, the call is to come to the Lord. Come to him. The invitation is there. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will provide you rest. Come to him. Come to him. God has been asking the same question to his people since Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Where are you? Can you let him ask that of you right now? Where are you? Where are you? Come to him. Come to him. Whether you're dealing with personal sin struggle, relational struggles, communal struggles, whatever it is, whatever failures, come to him. God wants to meet you in that very place. And that is one of the dominant threads of the story of Israel. God seeks fellowship with his people. And all it takes is a willingness, an acknowledgement. In the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, it says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Are you sensing your need for Christ this morning and where you are? 
Are you sensing a need you have because of besetting sins in your life, of failures, of just the fact that you desire relief in your life? That's all you need. Come to him. You don't have to work it out. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to clean yourself up. Come to him. We see as we go through the end of this chapter that the reality of what we're talking about here, it's, it's illustrated in a beautiful but yet heartbreaking way by the, by the picture painted in the final verses here. As the foundation is laid, there is weeping and rejoicing, and this is all being mingled together. The younger ones are rejoicing because they've, restored, they've been restored to the land, and the temple is on its way back, but we see that the older heads, the, the fathers, excuse me, they see, what, what do they see? They see the foundation. They see the rubble. And they can tell right away that this new temple is going to pale in comparison to the old temple. But it's together. There's weeping. There's joy. And even in the weeping, they're realizing that there is a smaller remnant here. When God rescued them out of Egypt, there were 600,000 men and now it's down to 42,000. They are a remnant. And Pastor Josh mentioned this in his sermon. I want to give him credit for this. And I, and it, I, tend, I mean, I agree with this. Just an observation that what is, what is missing from this altar? What is, what is missing? What's not mentioned? The ark. The ark. The very presence of God. It's not mentioned at all. Was it lost? Was it gone? We don't know. But there was a presence of God missing. There was this sense that it was not the same as it was. And there was a real sense of understanding that the Israelites' sin was the source of where they were, but yet they worship. They worship. And so as we draw to a conclusion... You fast forward in Ezra and Nehemiah, what do you find? You think Israel is worshiping and making it a priority of their lives? No. By the end of Nehemiah, you see Nehemiah, he's, he's touring the city. He's seen that people have been forsaking their vows to the Lord. Uh, the temple itself is being neglected. Ezra's work is corrupted that we read about here as the people are violating the Sabbath and setting up markets on the walls. And what do we see Nehemiah end with? It ends with him shouting, obey the Torah's commands, and basically saying to God, remember that I tried, God. And that's the end. And there's 400 years of silence, open-endedness, lack of closure, I told you before, I don't like non-closure. In my spirit, I know that there is a longing I have that only Christ can fulfill. And you see, we, we are reading here, understanding that Israel, their, their, their eyes were turned away from what God had promised them. That their full and final deliverance was not a political, it's not a social reform in their life. They needed God's presence to change them, not in the Ark of the Covenant, but what it pointed to, what it ultimately was to 
provide, God coming in the flesh to dwell among his, that is the true inheritance. We know that Jesus declared that in Matthew 1.15, it says Jesus, he, he declared that he was bringing the kingdom of God. See, Jesus had not simply come just to deliver a nation, but he came to bring the human race home. That's what we have. Jesus lived and died for our sin. He has risen and ascended to the Father's right hand, and we know he is coming soon. And all the promises of God of the Old Testament find their amen in Jesus Christ. That is the closure we have. You see, whatever your spiritual longing is today, let that longing be transformed into hope in Jesus Christ. Leave here today with a renewed sense of hope. That is my prayer for you this morning, that you have a renewed sense of hope in Christ, that you feel your need for Christ, and you turn to him and you worship. That is my prayer for us. That is my prayer. Because we know someday he will return and he will make his victory complete. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.